Hello again, and welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, episode 408. This is the weekly podcast about American flowers and the people who grow and design with them. It's all about making a conscious choice, and I invite you to join the conversation and the creative community as we discuss the vital topics of saving our domestic flower farms and supporting a floral industry that relies on a safe, seasonal, and local supply of flowers and foliage. This podcast is brought to you by slowflowers.com, the free nationwide online directory to florists, shops, and studios who design with American-grown flowers and to the farms that grow those blooms. It's the conscious choice for buying and sending flowers. And thank you to our lead sponsor, Florist Review Magazine. I'm delighted to serve as contributing editor for Slow Flowers Journal, found in the pages of Florist Review. It's the leading trade magazine in the floral industry and the only independent periodical for the retail, wholesale, and supplier market. Take advantage of the special subscription offer for members of the Slow Flowers community at deborahprinzing.com, where you can also find the show notes for today's episode 408. Today, we welcome a new sponsor to the Slow Flowers podcast, Farmers Web. Farmers Web software makes it simple for flower farmers to streamline working with their buyers. By lessening the administrative load and increasing efficiency, Farmers Web helps your farm save time, reduce errors, and work with more buyers overall. You can learn more at farmersweb.com. To learn more, I asked Dave Ross, CEO of Farmers Web, to join me and share a little bit of his story. Hey, I'm so excited to announce a brand new partner has joined the Slow Flowers podcast as a sponsor, and I'd love to introduce David Ross, co-founder and CEO of Farmers Web. Hi, David. Hi, Deborah. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for joining me. And Farmers Web can be found at farmersweb.com. Uh, I, David gave me a little blurb to share with you. It's Farmers Web software makes it simple for flower farmers to streamline working with their buyers. By lessening the administrative load and increasing efficiency, Farmers Web helps your farm save time, reduce errors, and work with more buyers overall. And so, of course, we'll have links to FarmersWeb.com in today's show notes, but I thought we'd hear it from the the horse's mouth and uh, have David tell us a little bit about this cool service. Uh, When did you guys launch Farmers Web? Uh, we've been a national service for uh, a couple of years now, since 2016. Before that, we were available only in the New York, New York region. And you're based in the New York area, right? Yes. But it sounds like now um, it's not geographically relevant. I mean, you, you serve people all across North America or in the U.S., right? Yes, we're, we have a national reach. Wow. Okay, cool. So how, just give us the simple version. Like, how is this tool being used by uh, customers? Um, so it's basically a, a software tool that helps farms um, inform their buyers of availability, both real time and coming soon, mm. uh, and manage uh, their customers and their buyers uh, to really sort of streamline, uh, you know, that side of their business. Uh, ideally, making you know fifty buyers as easy to work with as two buyers. Wow. Oh, that's music to people's ears. And I can imagine that because of the tools you have, once you've loaded like the whole list of every flower you grow onto that template, then you're not typing it in every week. And that, that's probably saving a ton of time. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, there's some neat tools in there, including a availability calendar 
that helps farms uh, share their availability for the next 12 months uh, with potential or current buyers um, that, you know, makes it easy on them to understand everything that you have, even if they're uh, current buyers and they're buying from you already and they might not know or be as aware as you would like them to be that you have all these other products as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, there's a sort of information flow uh, that can be uh, facilitated by this even before orders uh, start being managed. Mm-hmm. Just like bringing, like, for example, a flower farmer who's using this software might want to, like, use it as an introductory tool to a new florist who, just to say, here's the, the scope of the types of things we grow. It'll vary by season, but we'll just bring you up to speed at a glance. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they could say, you know, here's what I have right now, and here's what, what you know, I have throughout the year is sort of, you know, your your product catalog. Mm-hmm. That's actually really good for planning and forecasting since so many, uh, at least in the floral space, so many florists are now being asked by wedding clients, what will you have in August of 2020 so I can think about my wedding? And so there's a lot of forecasting that this tool could just help people in terms of looking ahead and seeing what's available when. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we've We've sort of built it that it can be refined over time, you know, as you know, closer to the exact date, you can put that in, mm-hmm. but you don't have to nail an exact date, right, mm-hmm. you know, right off the bat, mm-hmm. uh, eight months from now. So is it, it uh, if I'm a customer, I would receive this uh, note, this weekly availability or monthly availability, availability, like, uh, like an email through um, my, the customer management system that you talked about also having, right? Yeah, so you do it two ways. It, it lives within your farmer's web uh, profile, so you could link to that and say, you know, access my availability calendar here uh, if you choose to make it public, or you can download it yourself uh, as a PDF and send it around or bring it with you. Oh, I see. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, I, one of the things I impre- was impressed when I spent time on the site is um, I might not have a budget to hire a graphic designer, for example, but the the farmer's web templates are really beautiful and easy to read and kind of give you a polish and a, a little, a little uh, professionalism that maybe you don't have it with an in-house, you know, market, you maybe don't have an in-house marketing person. This kind of adds that sense of uh, polish and like, you know what you're doing. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I should be talking about myself. <laughs> no, thank you. It's uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's there to be used as both a, a front facing, uh, you know, you can send your buyers into it. But also, if you just want to manage your buyers, uh, you know, yourself internally without asking them to do anything, there's all sorts of features that enable mm-hmm. you to do that, including putting orders in for them. So if if they're, uh, for whatever reason, want to text you or email you your order, their order, um, they can do that and you can put that in for them and manage that all internally uh, on your end. So you don't have to ask anything of your buyers uh, because you're using Farmer's Web. But it also gives them the ability to order online, obviously, if they want yeah. to. I mean, that's the name of the game, right? To make it as simple as possible for people to buy from the farmer and remove any kind of objections or barriers about hurdles you have to go through. So I like that. Yeah, and to the same, you know, and if there's existing relationships that you want to use Farmers Home to manage, if they're getting certain pricing or certain terms or, or whatever it is, uh, you can put that all in, so nothing changes about that. So uh, what is the profile like of a typical customer, or is there one? I mean, like in terms of how how much acreage they have or what kind of volume they do, or is, is it can scale up or scale down 
depending on the farm. Yeah, it, 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 yeah, it totally varies, uh, you know, pretty widely. Um, really just, you know, a product mix and a customer mix is what, you know, necessitates the need for the software. So things start to get out of hand pretty quickly when everyone's ordering in different ways and paying in different ways and, uh, you know, paying on different schedules. And so our software helps keep track of all that. For whatever you might be growing, there's, you know, um, produce farms and flower farms and, uh, um, you know, all types of farms and all types of sizes of farms uh, using it. And people who grow both food and flowers, I understand. Yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, we've seen more and more of that um, from our our, our customer base. Interesting. So basically, uh, it's not a one-size-fits-all product. It's very tailored to you and your needs. And I think that's music to, it seems like it'd be music to people's ears. Like, okay, I want to have a um, inventory management and customer management system, but I've got a few quirky exceptions to the rule. And, you know, Farmers Web will allow you to do these custom PDFs and, you know, tailor it to this, I don't know, you said, there's customers who have restaurants, there's customers who have CSAs, <laughs> like all these different ways of delivering product, right? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, a lot of the, the feature sets that we've built have, you know, ultimate flexibility in that, um, you know, your standard shopping cart uh, software or Google Docs or stuff like that just, you know, doesn't really get it done as, as things start to get more and more, uh, you have more and more buyers and more and more, and more activity. Um, you know, one buyer will do something a certain way, another will do it a different way, mm. and you need software that can sort of, you know, one will order online, one won't. <laughs> oh my you, gosh! You, you know, need something to, to sort of, you know, keep up with all of them and, and give you the flexibility to manage all of that in one place. Um, you know, likewise, if you deliver for yourself, there are features around that. But if you only offer pickup, uh, there's features around that. If you work with a third party for delivery. Uh, you know, you can manage those orders on here as well. Mm, interesting. So, David, I, I understand you have um, built in this capacity for images that would accompany these availability lists. How does that work? Because I think that's a big deal in the floral space. Yeah, absolutely. So farms, when they um, create their account, they can put both a farm-wide image uh, that's on their profile page and then uh, image an image for every product that they uh, upload so that buyers, uh, you know, if they're looking through online, will see that. Mm, that's really important. That's great. So what do you recommend if someone's listening to this and maybe they don't have a tool like Farmers Web or maybe they're, they've got some rigged up, like you said, Google Doc thing that's not com- completely robust. What would you recommend the first step someone do to uh, check out what, uh, how your tool works? Um, they should sign up for the free account or the free trial of the paid account. And uh, there's a demo video inside both of those account types that uh, show you the feature set. And uh, it's a good idea to take a quick look at that and then reach out to us with any questions. And we can even do a live demo uh, with you via screen share to sort of walk you through everything before you get going. Oh, that's awesome. And if awesome. you want to just jump on there and, and if you want to just jump on there and go for it, um, we, can, we can talk to you, you know, when you're ready after that as well. Great. Well, okay, podcast listeners, if you do this, please let David or his team know that you've heard about this at the Slow Flowers podcast, because then you'll get extra blooming good service. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a bad, bad pun. Sorry for the pun. 
Um, David, anything else that uh, I, we should highlight? Oh, the other thing that, um, you know, we developed as we were seeing a lot of farms across the country, uh, more and more working with restaurants and these types of buyers, uh, either they were expanding the amount of business that they were already doing with those types of buyers, or they were interested in doing that for the first time. Um, we developed a guide that's available in our free account type uh, that helps farms uh, prepare for working with those types of wholesale buyers. And uh, everything from, you know, what is the information that they're going to want to know from you about your farm and your products so that you're sort of you know, ready with that information uh, before they uh, even start ordering from you, but also, you know, very easy uh, and, and, and good ways for you to provide that information to them. Um, and then a whole host of, of um, you know, sort of pro tips and best practices in working with these types of buyers. I love it. And even though, of course, um, restaurants are a little behind the eight ball ordering flowers from flower farms, they're more geared toward ordering, you know, produce and, and food uh, products. I'm seeing more and more that, that there's this demand for edible flowers and herbs. And that's a real opportunity for flower farmers to capture business in the restaurant uh, arena. And I think what I've heard anecdotally is once you get into a restaurant selling edible flowers or herbs, it's an opportunity to upsell those restaurants to bouquets or, you know, buckets of flowers, maybe on a weekly basis. So I, I think this is a really good, that sounds like a really good resource just to introduce people to, you know, this particular customer, which is increasing, which is restaurants that are concerned about, you know, connecting and having a relationship with local farms. So thanks for offering that. And people can find that when they log on to uh, create their um, trial listing at Farmers Web, right? Exactly. It's in the, the, it's in every account type. So if you create a free account type, it's in there for you. If you create uh, a paid account type on the free trial, it's in there. Um, great. So it's, it's in all account types. Oh, that's great. Well, we'll try to, we'd like to hear from people who are trying this out and, and how, um, how it's working for you. And, um, you know, I just think that firsthand experience is going to be really uh, beneficial for me to learn more about Farmers Web. And uh, I really appreciate you supporting our work, David. It's really great to have you in the family. Thanks so much. Okay. Take care, David. Okay. Bye. Bye-bye. Well, that was fun, a resource for techies and non-techies alike. I hope you check it out. And thanks, Farmers Web, for supporting this podcast. Our theme for 2019, 50 States of Slow Flowers, continues today with Cassie Hartman of Ozark Mountain Flower Truck in Springfield, Missouri. Listen for my conversation with Cassie in the second portion of this episode. American Flowers Week 2019 is coming to a close after we've enjoyed the fireworks and sparklers of July 4th Independence Day celebrations. I hope you and your flowers were part of the festivities. My two guests today have played an important role in this year's American Flowers Week campaign as co-creators of one of our nine botanical couture looks. Please meet Laura Mewborn of Feast and Flora Farm, based in Meggett, South Carolina, and Tony Reale of Roadside Blooms, based in North Charleston, South Carolina, who teamed up to design an incredible and deeply meaningful floral fashion look that represents coastal South Carolina's unique heritage and cultural roots. 
The women collaborated with their friend Giovanni Richardson, an oral historian representing the region's Gullah Geechee community of South Carolinians who descended from West African and Central African enslaved people. Giovanni served as cultural and historic advisor to the project, which incorporated locally grown flowers into the colorful wardrobe of a Gullah Geechee woman. You'll want to see more photos of this project, featuring flowers grown at Laura's farm. And the photo shoot took place at a historic setting where independent black farmers erected a fraternal common house in 1915. Other images were taken in the marshlands of coastal Charleston. I could go on and on about how inspiring I found their dress, styling, and setting, but you'll want to meet Laura and Tony right now. Let me give you a little background about them. Laura Mewarn grew up surrounded by gardens and flowers and had her first garden plot when she was still very young. Just a couple generations ago, farming was a way of life for Laura's family. But when it was time to decide on her college major, she landed on English literature and language. Life had other ideas for Laura, though. In 2015, she completed the the Growing New Farmers program through Low Country Local First. She apprenticed on a vegetable farm and landed a full-time job at a hydroponic farm. Laura continues her story in her own voice. I absolutely loved and knew I really wanted to start my own farm. In the meantime, I pruned tomatoes, welcomed a new baby into my family, and took coursework in floral design. In 2017, I was fortunate enough to purchase a home on acreage just outside of Charleston. And before I knew it, my dreams of flower farming and growing vegetables were off and running with the launch of Feast and Flora, supplying friends, family, and the Charleston community. Her collaborator, Tony Reale, founded Roadside Blooms with a story to tell and a mission to share, believing that beauty and sustainability don't just coexist, they work in concert. With over eight years of experience in the event planning and floral design industries, Tony's many adventures have led her to this chapter. Be sure to ask her about the time she converted a 1971 British ice cream truck into a mobile flower shop, or about her environmental geology background. A leader of Charleston's green and local movement, Tony has served on various nonprofit boards, including the Charleston Green Fair, and she's been recognized as one of Charlie Magazine's 50 Most Progressives in Charleston. She says this, At Roadside Blooms, we are committed to using American-grown flowers and foraged elements. It's an important part of our team's story, and we take great pride in it. Our arrangements prove that sustainability and style aren't mutually exclusive, all while elevating the grandest of galas or the simplest of ceremonies. We speak the language of flowers and believe every petal, leaf, and twig has a story. Each stem organically influences the direction of our designs and reflects the beauty of local seasonal flora while embodying the beauty of our surrounding natural world. I'm so pleased to introduce you to this creative team of Slow Flowers members and friends. I'll share more photos of this beautiful botanical couture project, and I'll share links to Tony and Laura's social places in today's show notes at deborahprinzing.com. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Slow Flowers Podcast with Deborah Prinzing, and I've got two incredible guests today, very special guests, and I'm so excited to introduce them to you. They hail from the Charleston, South Carolina area, and love to introduce Tony Reale of Roadside Blooms and Laura Muborn of Feast and Flora Farm. Hi, ladies. Hi. Hi. So glad to be here. This is Tony. Thanks, Tony. And Laura, you're there? 
I am. Yeah. Sadly, we can't all see each other. So uh, we'll figure out uh, a cadence so people can get used to whose voices are, are whom. I've asked Tony and Laura on the podcast to talk about a very special collaboration. Uh, if you have, uh, if you're a subscriber of Florist Review magazine, you'll see the June issue of Florist Review has a big spread about American Flowers Week and the botanical couture, beautiful botanical couture fashions that are in the pages. And Laura and Tony collaborated as farmer florist and florist um, to create the South Carolina look. And first of all, may I just congratulate you both on such a spectacular concept and the execution is exquisite. Thank you so much. Thanks, Deborah. This yeah. is Laura. It's really <laughs> gratifying to be able to make this project actually come to fruition. Well, Laura, since you're talking and people are going to get used to your voice, can you um, can you tell me how you got involved? I mean, I basically posted a call for submissions uh, late last summer and kind of threw it, left it very open-ended. And miraculously, people came in from all many regions of the country, which was nice. And uh, you two immediately said, hey, we want to do something and represent our community. So what... What inspired you to do that, Laura? And, and, or did who who took the lead on this and, and convinced the other person to participate? <laughs> I think this is Laura, and I think that would probably be me harassing Tony <laughs> um, <laughs> because I knew I have followed this project for the last couple of years and was always just gobsmacked by how beautiful some of these creations were, and I knew if I ever got the chance that I would definitely want to apply and um, would be really honored to be selected. Mm. So, you know, you put the call out for applications and I immediately contacted Tony because <laughs> of all the florists in the Charleston area, I knew that she would not only be a good partner from, um, I just knew she and I would be able to collaborate well mm -hmm. together, but I also really respected her design aesthetic and just an incredibly strong commitment to purchasing American grown and particularly locally grown flowers. So uh, to me, the choice of partner was pretty obvious, but in terms of the topic, we kicked around a handful of different ideas. <laughs> yeah, we did. <laughs> um, and and they, I, and I liked those ideas, but I feel like, I think my brain just kept saying, we need something more, we need something more. And I had always been struck by Jonathan Green, who is a um, low country painter and who's known for his iconic paintings of um, mostly African American women in these gorgeous, voluminous dresses and big uh, hats and... Um, just these big, bold, bright colors. Mm. And that's what sort of stuck with me. And what stuck with me more was the Gullah Geechee culture in the low country. And these are the descendants of Africans who were brought here to work as slaves on uh, plantations for the low country elite. And they still live here. They are an incredibly strong component of low country culture. And so much of what we look to in the low country as part of Charleston culture comes from these people. Mm, and yeah. of all the stories we could tell about Charleston, that is the one that I most wanted to tell. 
um, not just because I thought their their dress and their culture would work well as part of botanical couture, but because they are, in many ways, they are Charleston. Wow, that's so yeah. cool. And Tony, yeah. you're familiar with you're familiar with this um, this this uh, these people and their culture and their art and their I'm sure like their all their traditions and food and music. I mean, it's really infused in. Uh, South in especially when you say low country, you mean the like Charleston, South Carolina area, right? Uh, I think there's some debate over what constitutes low country. <laughs> For low country flower growers, we generally consider it the coast of South Carolina. So that would stretch all the way up towards the Myrtle Beach area and then as far south as Beaufort and Hilton Head, but mm. generally mm. it's coastal South Carolina. Got it. Got yeah. it. Got it. And this is Tony. Um, you know, one thing when Laura and I were throwing around some ideas, we quickly kind of ditched those ideas for something that was more meaningful. And I'm so glad that we came to this conclusion of using um, the Gullah Geechee culture as a way to highlight things going on here uh, in Charleston. You know, the South as a whole uh, can be very good at kind of glossing over um our past with, you know, pretty pictures of beaches and things like that. And, um, I think this was an opportunity for Laura and I to bring something, um, to the national, um, stage in terms of why Charleston area is the way, um, that it is culturally. And our model actually is an old friend of mine, Giovanni Richardson, and she has been involved in Gola Geechee, um, you know, culture for well her life, but also as she became, um, as she kind of became uh, infused in in that culture, she ha- is now going by um, Queen Gigi Ma'a Gogichi. Um, so she's a chiefess, and she's the founding member of A Taste of Gola. And before even she had come to this point, I had known her through a. Uh, some community activism that I was uh, participating on in in uh, James Island, South Carolina, where I was living. And so I'd gotten to know her that way. And so when we came up with this idea, I knew exactly who we were going to ask. And I was so grateful that she um, said yes within two seconds of me telling her about the project. That's so cool. And I, I, I really want to acknowledge that uh, the intentionality and the thoughtfulness that you both brought to this project, um, you know, even in when I interviewed you for the Florist Review article, you both were so focused on just saying, you know, we we want to tell the story of this culture while not glossing over the ugly past of, uh, you know, that maybe the ancestors uh, for Giovanni, you know, were enslaved people. And you just put such a, um, so much honor and uh, just what is unique to this culture. And I got the impression that you really got a lot of advice and guidance from Giovanni. So she was, you know, part of a create kind of a creative partner in this project in terms of making sure that you guys were so careful about not culturally misappropriating somebody else's work and that kind of thing. I thought you were really took care to, do, to be, to be thoughtful about that. Mm-hmm. Yes, Giovanni showed us uh, multiple places to have the photo shoot, but once we 
once she took us to the Seashore Farmers Lodge um, and we learned the history behind it, we knew that that was absolutely where we wanted to have the photo shoot. So Giovanni was definitely a guiding uh, voice in mm. that and um, just so joyful to work with as well. As you can see through the picture, she's a beautiful person um, inside and out. Her smile kind of says it all. Um, and we learned so much on site uh, with her. Um, about about history, she does a lot of tours, antebellum type tours, mm-hmm. and, um, and and so she was giving us, you know, the Gullah Geechee side of the the history of Charleston, rather than you know what we usually hear on on um, on the horse carriage tours <laughs> in Charleston. <laughs> well, you mentioned the Seashore Farmers Lodge um, that struck me in the uh, write-up that you sent me about the fact that it was a fraternal common house built in 1915 by black farmers for their community. And I thought, well, how cool, because we're celebrating local agriculture and floral agriculture is probably a different kind of crop, but that there was some connection to uh, something that was a century old uh, that was owned by, um, you know, black farmers in, you know, basically in not that far, not that long after their answers, ancestors were, um, you know, became free people. Absolutely. So tell me how you went about this. I know Laura mentioned that she had this painter, Jonathan Green, and I, you know, I, I wanted so badly to include a, a image of Jonathan Green's work in uh, Flores Review, but I probably would have been like copyright infringement or something, but we'll put a link. We'll, but there's a gallery that carries a lot of his work. So maybe we can share a link in the show notes so people can look up this like vibrant, beautiful, joyous imagery and then follow the thread to the dress that the two of you created. Um, that's, that's a really cool to have some starting point, but you kind of took it in your own direction. Was that because Obviously, you went from a two-dimensional canvas to a three-dimensional floral dress. Well, Tony, um, I would say that's pretty accurate. Uh, you know, we had wanted to to basically recreate one of his paintings, and uh, Laura had drafted this beautiful email to um, Jonathan Green. Um, we didn't hear back, but we wanted to kind of have his blessing on the mm-hmm. project. And, um, and it just kind of turned out that when we were actually putting it all together on site that day, it just kind of morphed into something different. Um, so (laughs) there's there's still the, there's still the arc. Don't you think of the connection there? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts, Laura? The flowers that I, the bulbs and corms that I bought specifically for this shoot the colors were selected based off of that really heavy primary color palette that he tends to use. Reds, whites, blues, yellow, um, just big, bold colors. And so on the one hand, we had a lot of those. And then on the other hand, there, as farming so often happens, some things that were supposed to be there just didn't bloom in time or, you know, were just a general um crop failure or whatever. So there was some last minute rearranging in part because of uh, what we had to work with at the time. We ended up with way more yellow than I would have imagined just because of the way things timed out and way, um, well, almost no blue, very little blue. But Mm -hmm. um, so some of it was just very much a practical. Mm -hmm. And then um, we very much wanted... uh, a very clear 
uh, blessing from him before we went ahead with actually replicating a painting of his. And since we didn't get that, I think there was some discomfort with recreating another artist's work. And the direction we went in was more about just trying to create uh, a dress that really overall reflected the Gullah Geechee culture. Yeah. And so the, the sp- kept the colors, but in terms of the actual design of the dress, um, it was probably more closely modeled on um, typical Gullah Geechee mm-hmm. dress. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the time you spent with Giovanni probably helped inspire some of the, um, just the way you placed flowers and the way you created that neckline and, you know, the kind of the shawl effect around her arms. I thought it was so beautiful. It's really amazing. And I, 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 before we talk about how you constructed the dress, maybe, Laura, you can talk about what it is that you grew, Some maybe some of the highlighted flowers. So as people look at the photos, um, we'll try to call out some of those details for them. Right. So as soon as I found out our project had been accepted, I immediately sent off emails to my wholesalers it was so last minute. <laughs> so I was basically begging for whatever um, it was they might have left in the late fall uh, that would fit that color palette. And I was able to find some gorgeous red Italian ranunculus and um, I had lots of daffodils already. So there mm-hmm. were daffodils available at that time. Um, white ranunculus, yellow ranunculus, some anemones, uh, my delphinium had started blooming, which is nice to get that pop of blue. Uh, but really, I I sort of went a little crazy ordering extra things from the wholesaler because my my primary market on a normal day is for weddings, mm. and that does not tend to be yellows like <laughs> yellows and bright reds. Uh, so there is a real gap in my crop plan in terms of what we would need for the project. So um, luckily they had a lot of those primary colors and sent those off and we immediately started planting them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was really, really grateful to be able to make those last minute orders. And then you also have a lot of um, foliage and even like Spanish moss in this garment. Mm-hmm. And that I, was the foliage kind of typical uh foraged material or things that you had grown, uh, it, it seems v- a really appropriate seasonally from when you, you know, you created the photo shoot last spring. The foliage, there's a lot of, uh, Eliagnus mm. that grows on the farm. Um, that tends to be something that people both grow as a landscape shrubbery around here, but it also just grows wild out in the woods and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, um, I had that from the farm and then we foraged greenery from around the lodge. And then the Spanish moss is just so prolific here. Um, I know Tony uses it a lot in her design work, I think, and I love incorporating it where I can because there's just very little that's as low country as Spanish moss. Mm, I know. I remember visiting uh, the area as a child and I was mesmerized by all that Spanish moss draping off the trees just just naturally, right? It just kind of defines, defines the canopy of your area. Uh, first of all, 
I love that you had that combination of like cultivated crops and then, you know, foraged uh, greenery and then kind of found branches uh, that were on location. Uh, it looks so cohesive. And I know that's because the two of you designed together and, you know, had this sort of dialogue going on. But um, how did you construct the dress? I, I think people look at these photo shoots and, and are just mesmerized by the, what were the mechanics? What was the technique? Sure, this is Tony. Uh, we had brought kind of everything that we had to the shoot. I always like to bring everything and kind of figure out what's going to work best. And chicken wire uh, was really the base of the dress. And we were able to kind of help mold it to her, to her body. Um, we had made sure, of course, she was wearing some long pants and some comfortable clothes underneath so that the chicken wire and, and nothing would really poke her. Mm -hmm. And the top was just fabric, um, a fabric shirt that we glued directly onto. And um, as Laura was saying that, you know, we incorporated Spanish moss. I mean, Spanish moss is not only just so iconic, but also really great at hiding any uh, mechanics that you don't want people to see. <laughs> <laughs> and so it really worked that we were going for this, you know, growing from the ground kind of look. We wanted her to look as if she had, you know, grown from the low country. Mm. Um, and that's, uh, that was our use of, of Spanish moss, um, which also helped hide some of the, the chicken wire mechanics. Um, lots of zip ties and floral glue and, um, and we had her bring her own headscarf. That was something meaningful for her. Wow, the palette! And, the palette just fits perfectly. That kind of pattern that it, with a lot of red in it. Yeah, absolutely worked out really well. And then, um, you know, because of uh, Charleston's history in uh, rice cultivation, um, Laura had brought some rice in a, in a basket, and it kind of. So I guess her you know, the design extended more than just the mechanics of the, of the dress. Um, and we wanted her to be a barefoot. So that, you know, kept going with the growing out of the ground kind of a feel. It's amazing. So, you know, it's funny because I've looked at a lot of garments that have been constructed with chicken wire as the base, and they usually look very stiff and heavy. And maybe just because of the botanical choices that you made with more lighter spring flowers and this and the moss, maybe it has this much lighter feeling. Uh, I hope it didn't weigh her down too much because she just looks very comfortable in it. Um, you know, that's really funny. I'm, I'm, I'm laughing because we had switched locations from the seashore farmer's lodge to the marsh view, which was down the street and we had to, she couldn't sit. So <laughs> of course, put down, <laughs> put down the seats in her car and she laid, uh, down in the back <laughs> of the car as we drove down the street. And, um, you know, Giovanni is very well known in, in that neighborhood. She lives in that neighborhood. And here we are, you know, doing this dress and people are stopping and seeing what we're doing and, and uh, calling out her name, I think, to make sure we, we weren't, you know, wrapping her up in chicken wire <laughs> for any other reason. <laughs> and so then, <laughs> you know, the, her, um, when some of her neighbors were watching us, you know, load her up in the back of this car and she's laughing and it was just hysterical. Oh my um, gosh. We were trying not to smush the dress too much. Um, but it was, yeah, it, it definitely looked flowy, but it was not comfortable. <laughs> oh, 
Well, that's that's the um, the smoke and mirrors of photography and floral design all to come to coming together. You had a great mm-hmm. photographer. Can you want to talk about some of the other creative people who were part of this project? Yes. Uh, well, Philip Casey, photography. Uh, he and I had started working together a number of years ago um, on one of my one of my first weddings, and we had loosely kept in touch. And I just follow him on Instagram, and he's very personable. And he does a lot of mission work, uh, medical missions to Africa. And I just just loved the way he encapsulates, um, you know, people in their spirit. And I just knew also that he was the person uh, I wanted to reach out to for this project. And he immediately said yes. Neat. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's great. And then you, um, you had some design assistants. Were they people who basically just helped with um, the harvesting and the, the extra you know, extra set of hands or. So this is Tony, Miss Kelsey Bacon. She has worked for me, um, full time now for almost two years and is just a, a gem of a person. And it was actually her, um, and work anniversary that day. And she knew that we were going to do this project, but she didn't know she was going to be able to help. And so when I um, told her in the car, she was beyond excited so I really think she put a lot of her energy and, and joyfulness into helping us design mm. that. Mm, that's great. She's the one who's coming to the summit then, right, Tony? She is, Oh, yes. good. I'm looking forward to meeting her. That's <laughs> cool. Well, congratulations. It's so fantastic. I'm so delighted to put it out into the world. And the fact that, it, yes, it's a beautiful dress, but it's what's even more beautiful is that um, it expresses your you know, your experience living in Charleston, you're wanting to honor the history of um, the Gullah Geechee people and finding a great collaborator with this beautiful model who kind of helped you tell that story and bring it to life. Absolutely. And Laura, who are your design assistants? Oh, I brought with me my long-suffering farm worker, Joy Colby. (laughs) Has also, she's also, she's now uh, my design assistant. Um, So she actually helped with the harvesting and the design creation and pretty much everything else I asked her to without a single complaint. She is a lovely human being. And then I also brought with me my dear friend, Scott Wojtowicz, who um, also is really great uh, with pitching in on design stuff. When I need an extra pair of hands, he just has a great eye and, again, uh, will pretty much do anything, including hunting for Spanish moss all up and down Sol Road without <laughs> plaint. So that's why I like to keep him around. <laughs> well, please tell them all how much I appreciate their contribution to this. Um so I met the both I, – I, I think we all were corresponding, you know, uh, by email last year. But we got to meet um, in August when I came to Charleston, and the two of you were actively involved in the um, Southern Flower Symposium, I think it was called, right? Right. Yeah. And this was put on by the Low Country Flower Growers, which you're both uh, well, Laura's involved in, and Tony, you're um, a client of a customer of of many of these growers. Um, is that right? That's correct. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, so I'm really, I'm really uh, excited that you collaborated because you're 
two of my favorite people, but I also would love to have um, have our listeners hear a little bit about your businesses and your philosophy, uh, especially given the background of where you're growing, where you're doing your business in Charleston, which is obviously very popular uh, destination city for tourism and for um, obviously all kinds of other agriculture, like the food scene is really amazing there. And uh, it's just a beautiful place uh, on the on the in the country and the flower scene is really blowing up it seems like it is yeah Mm -hmm. um so let's see laura would you just tell us a little bit of give us a snapshot of feast and flora farm and a little bit about your um your philosophy and kind of what facets of your business uh really drive you to be you know totally focused on on local and seasonal flowers Sure. I, Feast and Floor Farm is located in Megat, which is a tiny town about 30 minutes outside of Charleston. So it's one of the few remaining ur- uh, rural areas still in, pretty accessible to the um, larger city of Charleston. So um, I am out here. I My farm is flanked by marshes, mm. which is beautiful. Uh, but it also means I'm in a flood zone. So I have a lot of challenges in terms of flooding during hurricane season or uh, just my soil tends to hold a lot of water. So I'm constantly trying to figure out better draining. Um, I think that's just the life of being a farmer in in a coastal region. Right, right. Um, um, so do you, um, I mean, it seems crazy that you were growing bulbs because I'm, I, but you were constantly trying to make sure they had good drainage and everything, right? I, yes, it was an incredibly wet winter, but it was also an incredibly mild winter. So everything started blooming. I was I had flowers by the end of January, which I did not expect. Uh, so it was nice I had flowers for Valentine's Day, but for a little while I worried that I would have the flowers that I wanted for this photo shoot. So um, it. The weather here definitely keeps us on our toes as it does most other places. But my primary market is weddings because Charleston is such a huge wedding city, both for locals and we are one of the top destination wedding locations in the country. So um, I tend to focus my crops on those flowers that I know are coveted by people who are getting married Mm -hmm. and I sell wholesale to florist. And then I also design directly for weddings themselves. And when you, so that's interesting. So you would, would you sell this to roadside blooms to to Tony's business? I sell a lot to Tony's business. (laughs) Oh, good. I happily sell to Tony's business. (laughs) Well, how lucky that it's so mutually beneficial. Well, we'll hear from Tony in a sec. I I guess I wanted to just talk a little bit about the word feast in your farm name. Um, I know when I first met you, you told me that you had um, some background in, in food cultivation, right? I originally started farming for vegetable farms and, um, market gardens. So that's actually one of the big reasons I got into farming in the first place is a desire to really contribute to the local food economy. And I'm still trying to figure out ways to incorporate that into my crop plan. What we have a small kitchen garden on the farm specifically for 
my family and for the employees that work here. So we are cultivating mm. vegetables, small scale for us. And um, when I overplant things like kale, I just went a little crazy on kale this winter. So I was giving out kale to anyone who would take it. <laughs> um, that is not not a primary market of mine. And with more acreage, I would probably expand more into vegetables. But for now, I, I keep it pretty limited. But it is really important to me to be able to contribute to the food economy, even mm-hmm. if it means donating excess vegetables to the local food pantry. Mm-hmm. Oh, I also just think that the, having the word feast uh, in your business name, Feast and Flora, is just so, it's such a beautiful name. And it also gets people, I think it helps people realize flowers are part of agriculture, just like food is. So it I, probably gives you a lot of conversation starters, just, just explaining that to people. It's a very evocative word. Mm-hmm. And I think particularly from an event standpoint, like mm-hmm. when you're planning a wedding, you are essentially planning a feast. So yeah, I, I like it. It is a lovely, I think it's a lovely name. Last thing I want to ask you, Laura, before we pivot over to Tony, is um, I've I've run into situations where uh, people like you, who I guess what I would call a farmer florist, are um, somehow eyed kind of cautiously by a retail flower shop like Tony's business. Like, are you competing with the local florists? Like, how can you sell to florists but then also do design work? And I'm just wondering how you've kind of resolved that for yourself and how it how that's worked out with your relationships with with uh, your wholesale florist customers? I do think a lot about that. I try for transparency with all of my clients, including my florist. Like I I do not hide the fact that I am doing design work. Mm -hmm. And um, I think we're fortunate and this probably only works the way it does because Charleston is such a huge market for design work. Um, so we are competing in a sense, but there's enough work for everybody. It sounds like there there are so many opportunities to get involved in, uh, doing like I do everyday designs on top of weddings. And I really, it is a creative outlet for me that I've never had before. And so I feel really lucky to have been able to get involved in doing design on top of the farming, which I also love. It really stretches me. Um, so I, I just feel fortunate to be able to do this work. And uh, from your point of view, Tony, um, is this a unique, uh, relationship or do you have other farmer florists that you're buying from? Well, I have to start off by saying that Laura's flowers are just so beautiful. In fact, when we were getting set up today, she about an hour before that, she had sent an email with these amazing this image of this these amazing lysianthus that she's grown. And so the quality of um, her products are just it's just so wonderful. So I would say that, like Laura said, that we are unique in Charleston in that there is so much work to go around. And so I personally don't see any issue, um, you know, with purchasing flowers from a farmer florist. Um, perhaps in smaller markets that could be a little sticky, but uh, I don't feel that here at all. 
I feel lucky that there are uh, farmers like Feast and Flora um, that can sell these beautiful blooms that you just can't get anywhere else that mm. are that beautiful. Um, and so Laura has been really instrumental in the Low Country's uh, flower farmer group. And so that has allowed and, and given space to even smaller farms to um, sell flowers uh, to us, you know, it gives them the access to designers and also I think just the courage to go out there and say, hey, I just have like three bundles of this if you want it, um, mm. you know, and, and I'm lucky that I have a retail location as well. So I'm always happy to buy just a few bundles if that's all, um, you know, someone has to kind of give them a test ground for what they're, um, you know, hoping to do larger scale in the future. Well, let's talk a little bit about roadside blooms. I really appreciate what you've said. And what I what I was thinking as I was listening to you, Tony, is you're secure in your own aesthetic and in your own uh, brand that you're not, you know, threatened by somebody else offering design services as well. So I think that's a compliment to where, where you are in your business. Uh, you've developed your own following. And so you don't have to chase somebody else's following. And I I wish everybody could be like that. So it sounds yeah, like you both true. you both care about, you know, as Laura said, transparency and, and you know, you guys just probably communicate really well and have that that conversation to let each other know, you know, you know, if there is a concern, it sounds like you've worked it all out and it's it's really positive. Absolutely. And also Laura has um, referred business my way and me to her. So it works out really well. Mm. Mm. So, so possibly take all the weddings. On. <laughs> right. <laughs> you have a life too. Well, tell <laughs> so Roseside Blooms is a really charming retail shop. I'm so glad I got to visit it when I was um, in uh, Charleston. And uh, tell us a about it because this wasn't your first location, right? No, it's not. Um, I actually started with um, with a eco-friendly wedding and event planning company and segued into uh, flowers. And one thing that was really important to me was that I was going to incorporate um, ethical and sustainable business practices into my own business. And so when um, taking on flowers, I really wanted to make sure that I was, you know, sourcing flowers as locally as possible, if not local than American farms. And one of your books actually really inspired me um, to move forward with those kind of practices and knew that there were people out there that would appreciate that. Uh, and I have actually a geology background. And so uh, I have a master's in geosciences and just um, sustainability was a thread throughout my studies. And so when I had kind of gone to the more business side of things in my life, I wanted to make sure I was incorporating things that were meaningful, um, both ethically and, you know, not just for the the planet, but also um, for people. Mm. And as we know, you know, sourcing, uh, most of the flowers that we get are not sourced in in America and from places that may not have um, labor laws or environmental regulations. So all of that was really important to me. Um, so I kind of started Roadside Blooms actually with a 1971 British ice cream truck that I turned into a mobile flower shop. <laughs> and thus it was on the roadside. <laughs> it was on the roadside and it was super cool truck. It was vintage and it was British and that meant there was probably nobody that could work on the vehicle when it broke down, except for I magically found this fella that lived a few streets over that 
only worked on vintage British cars. Oh so that really God. worked out for me. All those things <laughs> I stalled out and was stuck somewhere. Um, how and, long did how long did you do the the flower truck? Um, I think I had it for two years, and I also had a, a, another bigger business with a partner at that time. And, um, so on the, when we didn't have weddings, I was working farmers markets. And so I had purchased local flowers and was redesigning them into, uh, bouquets for sale. And what I had uh, realized, and I'm sure a lot of people out there can relate to this is that when you're working farmers markets, um, the customers don't want to pay, you know, you know, more than $25 for a bouquet. And I had found out, um, within that time that it was a great way to perhaps get wedding clients just to get my name out there, but it was not great at selling, you know, making a living off of um, selling flowers that way. So I had become pregnant with my first son and so had two businesses and a new baby on the way. And so that was the lowest hanging fruit. So the truck left, but I, I had always um, had plans to kind of grow roadside blooms into what it what it is today. So um, we had a one small shop around the corner from where I am now for nine months and then needed more space. And so now we're in a 1,500 square foot space where some of that is retail and the rest is workshop for our wedding work. That's so cool. Yeah. So you're, um, you're, you take walk-ins and people order everyday, everyday bouquets and deliveries as well? Or uh, is it mainly producing, having the retail space and then producing um, for events and weddings? Yeah, I would say if you look at the revenue of the business, definitely weddings are where we are um, conducting the most business. But the retail side, we only sell, you know, bouquets that are locally and American grown flowers. And so it's an opportunity to educate consumers onto where to put, you know, your, just like you would care about where your tomatoes come from, you should care about where your flowers come from. Right. And so that's been really great. And we do do deliveries as well. And so, you know, other than some farmer florists in town, there's really not a delivery service where you, know, you can count on your flowers being sourced sustainably. Mm-hmm. So that's been a, a process of, um, it's been a process, but also a, a point where I really want to grow my delivery side of the business. And and Roadside Blooms is in North Charleston, so that's a little bit more urban than where Megan is, right? Yes, yeah. very different. And <laughs> very this- much urban. It's like the Brooklyn of Charleston. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. That's great. I didn't mean to cut you off. Um, when you mentioned farmers markets, Tony, it made me think I should ask you, Laura. Uh, what your relationship is with farmers markets. Cause I'm sure you've had a, some experience selling in that channel as well. I have, but my experience was very similar to Tony's and mm. that, um, I just found them to be very inconsistent that I would haul buckets and buckets of flowers out there. And some weeks I would sell out, which is great. But then some weeks I would sell almost nothing and when your flowers sit outside in the heat for hours, they aren't really able to be salvaged in the way that leftover mm. vegetables might be able to. So uh, I did find it, like Tony, a good way to meet people and gather future business. But in terms of an ongoing, in terms of ongoing profitability, it wasn't really a great fit for my farm. And also 
it's incredibly time consuming to harvest everything, to gather all your market materials together, to haul them out to the site, set them up, work the market, and then you reverse it all again. (laughs) So finding I was spending two or three days to work a market, usually by myself, uh, and it just, in the end, wasn't really worthwhile to me uh, to keep doing that. But I did find um, it great as a marketing venture. So... Right. Well, I mean, not to not to bash farmers markets, but I do think that you, you both had your stories sound similar in that it's a great way to incubate a young business, and then you kind of outgrow it and move on to um, a more profitable channels for your yes. for your brand. Very much. Well, what's going on with Low Country Flower Growers uh, this summer? Are y'all so busy that you're? Um, <laughs> you ran a whole conference last year, so you're taking a year off, or what's going on? I think we swore that we were going to take a year off, or at least cut back, and then um, I, I may have, <laughs> I may have bitten off a similarly large project for this year, which is fine. I think it's a really important resource for growers in mild climates because there is really very little in terms of educational opportunities, particularly in-person educational opportunities mm. to talk about the intricacies of growing in climates where, you know, our high season is, you know, winter and spring. So um, that's very different than what we hear from the Northern growers. So uh, it's really hard for me to sit, to say let's take a year off because we aren't taking a year off as farmers and I definitely don't want to let any opportunities go by. So we are planning another Southern Flower Symposium for early September. Um, I am actually talking to Eileen from Farm Gal Flowers who did your Fern Trust, mm-hmm. Fern Trust dress. So I think we will be having her as a speaker and, um, you know, hopefully – creating a good, diverse educational experience for farmers who want more growing information. We have so many new growers in the South. So um, I think any chance to get us all together to trade information uh, is only going to help us. I have always said for low country flower growers, uh, it seems sort of crazy to, uh, give growing tips to your competitors, but I do think we are much stronger together than not. So, wow. That's exciting. Oh my gosh. Well, when, when you have the dates and all, please share that with me so I can get, get that, get that out there for, um, you know, on social media. So the soul flowers community will learn from that. And like you mentioned, uh, you have low country defined as the coastal South Carolina region, but if you bring Eileen in, she's from Orlando. Uh, I know last year you had Rita Anders from kind of the between Houston and Austin area. So there are other parts of the country that have somewhat similar growing environments that relate to where you are in Charleston. And so there's, there's good education you can bring in to help the local growers as well. Definitely. And how are you going to get Tony involved? Is she going to do some kind of design project? (laughs) (laughs) I haven't yet coerced Tony into joining us. We're still trying to figure out our um, growing 
lineup for the symposium. So, oh, good. Well, to be continued. I, I, I call you. I'll call you sooner rather than later. <laughs> well, I love Eileen. She's freelanced with me before, and um, she came to. I held a workshop here with Ponderosa Time and Time uh, Bows and Arrows and Jenny Love um, a couple years ago, and she came as a participant. And so I've gotten to know her over the last couple of years. Well, I, I think the comment that, that Laura is making about the unique uh, farming uh, challenges uh, for, for the region also impact the unique design challenges for the region because you're impacted as a designer um, in terms of the seasonality of when, when are outdoor weddings and what's available and how can you juggle this sort of hot, humid summer for uh, you know, your design. So I'm, I'm sure that there's a lot of things that you guys uh, can bring to the table in terms of helping growers understand, um, you know, what the florist needs. Absolutely. And also I feel that as a designer, one thing I prep my clients for is I let them know, you know, my, my sustainability commitment and my commitment to local growers and that I let them know that I need the flexibility when I'm purchasing flowers that a lot of times I have farmers that will just come to the shop and, and, and say, this is what I have. And knowing the design that I have for that weekend, I can have the freedom to choose. And so I think it's really important for designers not to, um, you know, back themselves in a corner by, you know, promising certain things or, um, you know, leading the client you know, to believe that, you know, peonies are available all year round, you know, things like that mm-hmm. kind of really change the conversation and say, look, uh, you trust me. If you, if you like my work and you're willing to hire me, then trust in my uh, choices for florals for your events. And so I find that I've set myself up to have a lot of freedom in mm. the purchasing. That's good advice. Well, listen, I, we've had such a great conversation. I'm just, I, I have to tell the listeners, this is the very first time I've made, managed to get the technology to work with two guests who aren't glued at the hip in front of a, a computer. So I, I'm somewhat giddy about how this all worked out. And thank you both for being so patient as I tried to get my technology up and running. Uh, this has been a really special conversation and I'm just... I'm staring at the photos of your beautiful work uh, for American Flowers Week while we're speaking, and I can't wait to share them with with people who are who've heard this conversation. Uh, but I'd love to show both photos of the both of you and some of your other uh, growing and design work. So I'll I'll ping you both for for a few extra photos to include in our show notes. Sounds great. Thank you so much for having us, Deborah. It's it's a delight. And anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Well, I guess my hope is that more communities can have the relationships between uh, flower farmers and designers. And I know, Deborah, you're working really hard um, to raise the consciousness of that relationship. So I guess I would just like to end with I hope that, you know, listeners out there really reach out to and build a community in their Mm -hmm. own community. So important. Tony and Laura, thank you both for sharing your talents uh, so generously with the Slowflowers community and especially to support my goal of uh, getting these beautiful botanical couture looks out into the world to celebrate American Flowers Week. I'm just grateful for, for your generosity and your time and talents and enthusiasm. Well, thank you so much. It was an honor to be on Slow Flowers Podcast. (laughs) It's been fun. (laughs) Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you, Deborah. Bye. Bye.
guys so much for joining my conversation today and for hearing Laura and Tony's stories. You'll also want to check out their local organization, Low Country Flower Growers, where farmers and farmer florists from Myrtle Beach to Savannah along coastal South Carolina have come together to educate themselves, their peers, and their customers, florists and consumers alike. It was a delight to spend time in Charleston last August with these wonderful talents, people committed to a sustainable floral landscape. When they invited me to speak at the first Southern Flower Symposium, and yes, you heard correctly in our conversation that another symposium is in the works. We'll post details as soon as they're announced, and you can check out updates on the social places of Laura and Tony, which I'll share. Now, let's visit Missouri and meet Cassie Hartman of Ozark Mountain Flower Truck as part of the 50 States of Slow Flowers series. Cassie grew up in Springfield, Missouri, and she returned there after college. She wanted to bring a small piece of her European travels to the community, and that's where Stella, a 1970 Volkswagen truck, comes in. As Cassie says, Stella enjoys parking in front of our favorite local businesses, some sometimes getting so excited to meet new customers that she breaks down on the side of the road, and we just started selling flowers there. Whether you're grabbing flowers on your way to a friend's house or just wanting to brighten your home, Stella and Cassie dream of bringing that big city feeling to Springfield, making fresh cut flowers more accessible and spontaneous for the Ozarks. Let's meet Cassie and learn more. Well, hey, today we're talking about Missouri, and this is part of the 50 States of Slow Flowers series that we've launched for 2019 on the Slow Flowers podcast, and I'm so excited to introduce Cassie Hartman of the Ozark Mountain Flower Truck uh, from Missouri. Hi, Cassie. Hello. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for letting me chat about the business in Missouri with you. Yeah. So exciting. Oh, great. Well, tell us what is Ozark Mountain Flower Truck? Is it a truck? It is a truck. Um, it's a 1970 Volkswagen single cab truck. So, so really, this was actually always a truck or did you have to like customize it? No, it has always been a truck. Um, the other name for it, a lot of like VW fanatics know it as a transporter okay and they they literally used to use it to transport produce um and stuff like that back in the day when Mm. they were in their prime so you're kind of of, yeah it's it's appropriate that you're keeping it going as an agricultural delivery vehicle yeah yeah and it's a volkswagen so it's the whole flower power thing so it kind of all ties in yeah, well, you said it from 1970, so that's like the height of flower power, which is probably before yeah. you, probably before you were born, right? Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, how how have you, did you set up the business? Um, is it all mobile? It is all mobile. Yes. Um, the inspiration behind it is um, I had an opportunity to study in Europe years and years ago, and um, I saw that they took flowers a little more casually than we do, um, less intimidating. They would have little stands outside of businesses with flowers you could grab and go. And I always liked that idea of um, kind of taking the formality out of it. But since I didn't have like my own store to put a stand out in front of, I was like, oh, I can just use a vehicle and move it around like food trucks and bring the stand to businesses. 
That is so, brilliant. Brilliant. When, yeah. did, when did you launch the business? Um, July 17th of 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah, so this is our third season. That's exciting. Okay, so you're in Springfield, Missouri. Um, yes. Where is that in the state? We are southwest Missouri. Okay. So we're about two hours, maybe an hour and a half from the Arkansas border. Okay. Um, and the Ozark. Yeah, a lot of people know it's because we're like an hour outside of Branson. So oh, okay. a lot of people know where Branson is. Okay. And the Ozarks uh, branch or uh, continue from uh, Arkansas into Missouri, it sounds like, that, that region. Yeah. Yeah. We have... We have part of the Ozark Mountains up here. Oh, that's awesome. So, so are you mainly serving people in the Springfield, Missouri area, or are you going farther afield? Um, we stick pretty close to Springfield. We'll mm -hmm. dip into some of the surrounding cities like Ozark, Nixa, Republic, places like that. But when you're in a 1970 vehicle, you like to stay close to your mechanic. So... <laughs> We stay pretty close to Springfield. <laughs> do you do you only drive on surface streets, or will you go on the freeway or highway? I will attempt the highway when it's light out. Um, <laughs> otherwise, we we stick to the back roads. <laughs> oh my goodness! I don't mean to laugh. It's just adorable. Um, no, yeah, it's pretty entertaining when people zoom past us on the highway. But we get lots of waves and peace signs thrown at us, so they're not too upset when we're holding up traffic. <laughs> yeah, it's like your mobile billboard, anyway, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. So you had this inspiration from traveling in Europe and sort of seeing how flowers were more accessible and not so, you know, kind of behind the glass. Um, but how mm -hmm. did you how did you actually execute this idea? Did you have to do a lot of research about where you would get your flowers? Because you're you're growing is sort of a minor aspect of what you're doing, right? Yeah. Um Google was my best friend for a while and I really wanted to make sure that because I have um, loved the whole slow food movement. So I wanted to make sure I was using flowers that were locally grown because back in the day, no florists used to have their cutting gardens. And I always liked that idea of just like keeping it close. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to someone about my idea and they mentioned your book, The 50 Mile Bouquet. And am I naming that correctly? Yes, you sure are. Yeah. Oh, okay, no. Good, I'm like, good. wow, thanks for that plug. Oh, how fun. That was, yeah. I mean, that was like, um, it came out in 2012, so it's been a while. Yeah, it was a while back. And they were like, I think you would really like what she talks about. And so I read that book and was like in love with that whole idea and then found the whole Slow Flowers movement. And um, then just started talking with farms and got connected with them for sourcing. Um but when I started in 2017, there weren't as many people focusing on flowers. Mm -hmm. Since then, I think your movement and with the help of like other bigger cut flower growers, um, the cut flower scene has really grown um, all over the U.S., I feel like. But here especially. Um, That's great. That's encouraging. When Yeah, when I can't find things um, locally, I do have to source wholesale, but Luckily, we have two wholesalers in town. Mm -hmm. And are they are um, they providing domestic U.S. grown flowers, or is it harder to to know what you're getting? So um, there's one that they have the American grown flowers all labeled, and they help me 
point me in the right direction of when they have more American grown stuff. And then there's another one that they travel out to more of the rural areas of Missouri to source and they bring in flowers that are grown by the Amish and they text me when they get that, that shipment in because they know I like locally grown. So I get a nice little text that say, Hey, we have the Amish flowers in and I sprint over there and grab what I can get. Oh, Cassie, that's so um, cool. That's great. Yeah. It's, it's really cool. Um, so yeah, so since I got started, um, I was able to source from, there are two, um, farms in the area that are really well known for like their regular produce and their CSAs. Um, so when I first got started, I sourced my local product from Millsap Farm and Urban Roots. And then since then, in the last couple of years, Two other people have really, um, I don't know, like grown their selection more and focused more on flowers. And so since then now in Springfield, there's Sea Street Flowers. And then down in Thomas Hollow, there's Gardenia Farm Flowers, which I think Arkansas mentioned them when you Mm. interviewed Mm. the florist from Arkansas. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But yeah, Liz from Gardenia Farm is great, too. That's awesome. So, yeah. so um, you've mentioned those. Maybe I can make sure to provide links to those farms in our show notes so people can yes. see, see um, yeah, they who you're supporting. Websites. Wow. Yeah. So it's, it's really interdependent. Like you said, they've grown with you and that you're now needing a regular supply of flowers. And so that they're kind of thinking about you as they're growing, it sounds like. Yeah. And um, like one with Millsap Farm, they're um, their flower grower, Kimby, we meet the last two seasons, we meet in the fall and we like, basically we're like kids at at Christmas. We go (laughs) through seed catalogs, we talk about colors and like varieties that we want. And then I give her like dates of like, I'm going to take all your flowers on these days, especially. And we kind of like make sure we're on the same page so that it's worth it to them to save space in their um, like hoop houses and greenhouse to grow flowers they know they have a buyer and then what what i don't grab they can use for their csa shares and their the farmer's market wow that's that's wonderful to hear it's really great to talk about how farmers and flores are both they're basically the essential two sides of the coin and and you need each other so i love the example of planning and giving your feedback to the farmer so they know what seeds to order yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun too, getting to visit them frequently and mm. see what's going on there. Mm. So, Cassie, I've seen a lot of photos of the flower truck. If you just, t- if anyone's listening, you just type Ozark flower truck into your Google search, and lots of beautiful images of this like baby blue kind of maybe. Tea- what what do you call the color? Is it kind I, of? I like to call it sage. Oh. I think it's sage. A little more green than, like, than blue. Kind of like a blue, a blue green. It depends on like who's editing the photo <laughs> of the truck. But I think like in natural light, it looks a little more green than blue. Okay. I was going to say Robin's egg blue, but Robin's egg blue can be very kind of a teal yeah. green. So good. Yeah. So sure. your, your beautiful Sage 1970 VW um, transporter has a bed mm-hmm. and you've got on the bed uh, a whole array of, of French flower buckets. And, and, and how did you set that up yes. and what is in those buckets? So, um, yeah, they're just the galvanized buckets and they're on the most beautiful frame. Like guys 
love to come up and look at the truck. <laughs> and then, like, after uh, after they've gotten over the initial looking over of the truck, then they start talking about this frame and how beautiful it is. But um, it was a retired firefighter, and I basically went to him with buckets and was like, I need a frame for these. I want two rows. And he was like, no worries. I've got it. And, like, two days later, he calls me up, and he's like, okay, I think I'm done. And he had like this whole curved frame that he came up with on his own. So I was just lucky that he was so great at fabricating metal and like was excited about it and came up with this gorgeous frame. Oh my gosh. Um, So this this prevents the buckets from tilting over basically, right? Yeah. And it it holds them up. So they're basically just like circles Mm -hmm. that you just set the bucket down in so that you can remove them to clean them Mm, and everything. And the frame is removable too. So I can clean the bed of the truck. So do, do people shop quote unquote shop from both sides or what what is your typical setup? They shop from the side with the buckets. So the buckets are on the passenger side of the truck and they curve to the, um, to the back of the truck. Mm -hmm. And then they Stop, and then we've got our workstation back there. So there's this butcher block, like countertop, mm-hmm. that sits on the bed of the truck. And then we have our paper, and so that's our workstation on the other side. Wow, kind of like your pot, um, your potting bench, but you're designing back there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh my yep. goodness! And then, what is your typical relationship with customers? Are you selling pre-designed uh, like posies, or do you let them? They are, yeah, it's when we have the truck out, it's all um, single stem, unless we have like a large, um, like corporate event, then Mm. we'll have prearranged stuff for people to grab. Um, But yeah, when we have the truck just out with businesses, like for the public to use, it's all single stem. And I would say 75% of our um, guests go crazy and love making their own and only about like 25% ask us to make it for them. Mm. Um, so people really do enjoy getting to put it together. I think you're right. I mean, that's sort of the emotional visceral, uh, joy of, of touching flowers, right? Yeah. And because it's all single stem, like, um, you know, a mom and her four-year-old can walk away with just one sunflower Mm. and it doesn't have to be a whole bouquet. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's always nice too, that if you've only got a few bucks, you can still walk home with some flowers. Yeah. So how do you price? Is it depend on the size of the flower or the value of the flower or is it all flat rate? Um, No, we price by the value of the flower. Mm -hmm. Um, So our, our typical range is like a dollar up to sometimes seven or eight dollars. Like if we have peonies, you know, we don't want to undercut anyone. So we make sure that it's still, you know, what you would see in a regular flower shop. Mm-hmm. Um, because we are sourcing from farms, you know, we do have to mark it up just like anyone else would. Yeah, I really appreciate you saying that. That is, I am sure that is music to the ears of farmers listening because uh, you're you're pricing basically at retail so that that allows them Mm -hmm. to maybe sell to other florists at wholesale or have competitive pricing like at a market. Wow. Right, exactly. Um, And that way, like we are not directly competing with them in any way. 
and um, we're also not making any of our florist friends in the area <laughs> upset with our pricing. So yeah. we try to make sure we're on page with everyone. Yeah, you're walking the talk. I love that. Um, Cassie, you mentioned corporate events. Is that a big part of Ozark Mountain Flower Truck? Um, yeah, so we, I'd say we do a few every quarter. Mm. Um, hospitals like to use us for their nurse recruitment events. And so they will basically, they tell me their budget and we stock the truck accordingly. Um, and then they like have a system of how they're, um, guests, I guess, go through the recruitment fair and mm-hmm. then they come to us and they're like, oh, we get five cents. And so then they get to pick out their five cents and go home with oh. free flowers. Oh, like a little perk. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then we go to a lot of weddings as a wedding favor truck. What? Which is, has been a lot of fun. How does, yeah. that, how does that work? So the bride will basically like say, this is how many guests I'd like to um, gift bouquets to, and we give them the option to add a monogram sticker since mm. it's their wedding. Mm. Um, and then the guests get to come to the truck and we usually like have a little poem we'll put out that say like, um, a carnation eucalyptus and a daisy tea or something like that. And mm. that way they kind of know what their recipe is that mm. they get to take home. Mm-hmm. And then instead of it being like, a I don't know, like a coaster or whatever. It's just something pretty for them to take home. And it's a different kind of gift than the typical wedding favor. And, yeah, than a little baggie of almonds or something like that. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's really cool. And um, I just, I just seems like that the, the imaginative, uh, the imagination gets spiked when people see the truck and they start thinking about how they want you at their, wedding or their event or their corporate gathering um, because it's so visually pleasing. And I can see why you're like part of the decor too. Yeah. And the, you know, usually it's the bride that's, you know, picking out the decor items for the wedding, but like the dad's usually get really excited when <laughs> they hear that a 1970 Volkswagen is going to be there. So they're always like, it was easy to get my, my dad on board with this. I'm like, oh, well, good. <laughs> oh, I see. Dad's paying for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So they're, they're definitely fine with the classic truck showing up. I love but, it. Yeah, like I had my ideas of, you know, where I kind of saw the business going, but like you said, like once you get started, people have so many great ideas and you just like get to take it even further than you originally thought it was going to go, which is really fun. So on a, like a regular week, where would you park the truck? Is it at a farmer's market or do you have a regular schedule? We have a kind of standing schedule and then we throw in special events as they come, come along. But we go to a we call it a city market. Mm. Um, we have three farmers markets in town and we go to one, um, on the North side of Springfield. It's the, um, commercial street, like historic district. Mm -hmm. And they have a market Thursday evenings and Saturday mornings. And Mm. that's where we'll go, um, March, no, April through October. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then then throughout the week we 
visit different local businesses. Like wow. we have a few coffee shops we go to. Uh, sorry, I need to take a drink of water. Um, That's okay. Coffee dro- shops that we go to. And um, yeah, just different businesses. I'm trying to think of the other places well, we go to. Well, it kind of makes me think of what you ref- referred to like a food truck. Like the food truck, it, at least here in Seattle, there's food trucks that are so popular that you have to follow their Twitter feed to see where they're going every day and whether you can get in line and get their food in, you know, where you, yeah. near, near your office or something like that. Yeah, so we, yeah, we post on Instagram and Facebook our schedule. Got it. We'll post like the week schedule at the beginning of the week. And then every day we post a reminder of where we'll be. Mm, love it. Okay. Well, this has been, I, my, my head is spinning with ideas. I'm so inspired by what you're doing. And I think <laughs> that it'll inspire other people too. Um, what Can you just, before we wrap up, tell me how you, what your ba- path was? Or do you have a background in uh, fashion or art or like what, what led you to this? Um, well, I mean, like growing up and all through high school, I threatened my parents that I was going to be an art major and like go to art school. Um, but then like practicality took over and I actually, um, have, I've worked as a nurse for six years now. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, but I've always been like really into the whole art world. I've loved color, like color theory is so much fun. Um, and then growing up, I've always loved flowers. But this explains why the nurse recruitment um, uh, venues uh, yeah. like working with you, because you understand what, what they need to achieve. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Um, but yeah, so it just kind of evolved. I had a day off of work and was like, <laughs> I like this idea. I'm going to go for it. <laughs> was it hard to find the vehicle? It seems like that the, that's your brand, basically, right? Yes, it is my brand. Um, the vehicle, basically, there's a Craigslist for Volkswagen and went on there, found the truck. It was originally lime green um, when I bought it. Its its name was Kiwi, which was very <laughs> fitting. I think you did um, a, made a good decision changing the color. <laughs> I Yeah, I, I do too. It was really cute, but just not the right vibe. Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's a website where you can go and just scroll through photos of Volkswagen. That is hysterical. Well, I just have to tell you that when, yeah. I, when I was a kid, I must have been 11. My parents took a cross-country trip with me and my two younger brothers in the backseat of a VW Bug. And I really, oh I cannot believe, like, why we didn't revolt, you know, but you just do whatever your parents tell you <laughs> when you're that age. And yeah. If if we had had a VW bu- a van, we would have been all super happy. But I, I'm just I'm just I'm still a little traumatized by that whole experience. So a, a little tiny VW bug. <laughs> yeah, with five people that in was... it, and there was like a big uh, luggage rack on the roof that was like a plywood oh box that somebody rigged up for us. It was ridiculous. We were we were always going the budget route for everything. So um, nice. I'm sure people have asked you like if you would put like take the flower the flowers off and like put a glamping tent on there and you could go camping with it. It would be so cool. <laughs> but Yeah. Something. They like just, just a couple of days ago, someone was like, please tell me you're going to take this camping. 
like someday. Yeah, exactly. Your plate is pretty full right now. Well, I am so, yeah. I'm so happy you said you'd chat with us. Will you share some photos so people who are listening can check you out and um, see the flowers that you're sourcing from local farms and a little bit about the, uh, the party that happens when Ozark Mountain Flower Truck shows up? Yeah, definitely. I will. That's awesome. Um, I know you mentioned that you do workshops in the fall too. So those are posted on your website um, for people to, probably not yeah. yet, but they will be, right? They will be, yeah. We'll do wreath workshops in the fall and winter. Well, I hope I get up down to Springfield so I can check you out in person, Cassie. I'm delighted that you yeah. told us your story and um, you know, you're speaking on behalf of all these farms that you work with. And so I, it's, it's great to see that collaboration. Yeah, it's been a lot of fun. Good. Well, have a great season, all right? Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me chat with you. Oh, my pleasure. What a treat. Thanks a lot, Cassie. Uh-huh. Bye. Well, that was so completely cool, but utterly unplanned. Two of today's guests have used vintage vehicles as mobile flower shops. That's a fun coincidence. Before we wrap up, I promised to announce the dates and location of the 2020 Slow Flowers Summit. So here we go. Drum roll, please. We will bring the Slow Flowers Summit to Santa Cruz, California on Monday and Tuesday, June 29th and 30th of 2020 with a bonus Slow Flowers farm-to-table dinner taking place Sunday night, June 28th. Our partners include UC Santa Cruz's famed Center for Agroecology and Sustainable Food Systems. I'm still going to get the acronym wrong, but it's C-A-S-F-S, and they, some people call that CASFAS. I'll get used to that. And our other partner is Bonnie Dune Garden Company, owned by our member, Teresa Sabankaya, a past guest of this podcast. Yes, after holding the summit first on the West Coast in Seattle in 2017, then moving to the East Coast in Washington, D.C. for 2018, and then landing in the central part of the country in St. Paul, Minnesota this year, we've decided to continue the rotation by returning to the West Coast. You'll have a full year to plan. But more details will be announced in the fall. Visit slowflowersummit.com for updates, and I can't wait to see you in Santa Cruz next summer. Our final sponsor thanks today goes out to Syndicate Sales, an American manufacturer of vases and accessories for the professional florist. Look for the American flag icon to find Syndicate's USA-made products and join the Syndicate Stars loyalty program at syndicatesales.com. Thank you for taking the time to pop in your earbuds and join the Slow Flowers podcast. Thank you to our entire community of flower farmers and floral designers who together define the Slow Flowers movement as our cause gains more supporters and more passionate participants who believe in the importance of the American cut flower industry. The momentum is contagious. I know you feel it too. I value your support and invite you to show your thanks with a donation to support my ongoing advocacy, education, and outreach activities. You can find the donate button in the column to the right at deborahprinzing.com. The Slow Flowers podcast has been downloaded more than 490,000 times by listeners like you. Thank you for listening, commenting, and sharing. It means so much. 
I'm Deborah Prinzing, host and producer of the Slow Flowers podcast. Next week, you're invited to join me in putting more American-grown flowers on the table, one vase at a time. And if you like what you hear, please consider logging onto iTunes and posting a listener review. The content and opinions expressed here are either mine alone or those of my guests alone, independent of any podcast sponsor or other person, company, or organization. The Slow Flowers podcast is engineered and edited by Andrew Brandlin. Learn more about his work at soundbodymovement.com. Thank you.